0: Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to GEM23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM. Growing in a Green World on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Kritika Karbanda, a Master in Design Studies candidate specializing in energy and environment from Harvard Graduate School of Design and a Chang Social Innovation Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is the co-founder and Chief Product Officer at Pathways, a climate intelligence platform for the construction sector. On a mission to decarbonize the build sector in every capacity, she also co-founded DeCarbon, a nonprofit that enables data transparency for sustainable construction. Kritika, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Charles. This is super exciting.
0: So a lot of your work focuses on buildings. Why is decarbonizing the building sector important? And what role is Pathways and some of the other projects you're working on playing in addressing the building sector?
1: You're starting with a very important question. So the building industry right now contributes to almost 40% of the global carbon emissions in the whole mix of carbon emissions. And by 2060, the urban environments, which means that the cities we are building, all of that will double in size. This means that we'll release almost 250 gigatons of embodied carbon. And this actually is the carbon in the wall behind me and the floor on which we are supporting everything. All of these numbers actually account to building a new New York City from now until 2060. So just imagine the amount of impact that the built environment will have and the amount of construction that we as humanity, we are doing globally every day. We are trying to tackle this issue uh, through Pathways, and it's it's just that, that we can't stop building because people need homes, we need a roof to live under. And at Pathways, we are essentially building climate intelligence for the built environment. So what that means is we want to integrate AI-based feedback systems in the 3D CAD software that more architects and real estate developers usually employ, and we want to provide real-time guidance for the most cost-effective emission reduction strategies So that was a bunch of technical jargon, but to break it down, what it means is if I'm designing this wall, which is behind me, and if I cut it down, pathways will help tell you what kind of material to go for, what kind of material manufacturer to go for. Is this material coming from India? Is it coming from China? Is it coming from Australia? What are the emissions associated with the transportation emissions to import that material all the way from, let's say, China to the US? So we will help real estate developers look at the most cost-effective strategies while they are still in compliance with the bylaws, which are local bylaws and global bylaws to design any building. And essentially, our perspective at Pathways is to change how architects feel about fighting climate change. And we want to make them feel that they are empowered, make them give this autonomy back to architects into being key players in fighting climate change, essentially.
0: What is the role of design in decarbonizing the building sector? what are the highest impact decarbonization actions that can be incorporated into the design process?
1: So as soon as, let's say, we look at a piece of land and we clear it for designing a building, the emissions are released right then and there, because you're essentially cleaning up a land and changing why the land should be used. So the design Is super impactful starting from when you even draw a line on paper as an architect saying, hey, the building should be oriented in this manner as compared to some other uh, way. Right then and there, architects start making decisions on energy efficiency. So, everything starting from say, if you want to orient your building in a way that the building can capture more solar radiation, the building in turn in the uh, later stages, uses lesser energy because we have more daylight coming in. So every small step, every small decision that an architect makes throughout the building process, starting from the concept design phases to actual construction, heavily impacts the overall energy efficiency. So let's say, firstly, it's the orientation. Secondly, when I as an architect de- determine how much of my envelope or the facade or the like the walls that cover a building, how much of those will be window versus how much of that will be solid also has a huge impact on both the daylight that enters inside a building and the energy that the building will use in order to heat or cool the building. Thirdly, designing according to the climate is super important. So let's say if you're in a very cold region, you can't design in a way that the that it, the building is super open. So you can't have a lot of glass because that means that you need a very heavy mechanical system, a very heavy... HVAC system, which is like a heating, ventilation, cooling system for your building to artificially heat it. So an architect has super important decisions to make, but we want to focus more on the material decisions. So for example, if you use a certain grade of concrete versus versus some other grade of concrete, there are several different kinds of emissions associated with every material decision you make. For the facade, if you end up choosing, let's say steel, except for aluminium, you end up saving almost 15% of carbon emissions for every square meter of facade that you're building. So these material decisions are super important. And mostly it's the core and shell, which is basically the structure of a building, the columns, the beams, the floor slabs, and the envelope or the facade, because that's where the most of the material is employed in a building. And these material decisions are super important because they have a very heavy hand in changing the amount of emissions that are associated with your building.
0: Buildings, of course, are a very tricky sector to decarbonize. You have to balance sustainability considerations along with a range of other factors like housing affordability, zoning and siting issues, and comfort. How do you balance all these different constraints and considerations?
1: That's a great question, because most of the time when I talk with people who are sustainability specialists, so let's say even architects, they feel that it's one dimensional on how we should approach different kinds of building projects. But that's not usually the case. So how we work in an architecture office typically is we have a large team. So each person represents some other kind of service that is built into, weaved into this whole holistic design project that is formulated in the end so when we start with the project we consider the local bylaws the global bylaws we investigate what are the zoning and uh, setting constraints with every project and then we define like a very rough let's say envelope of this is the big chunk that we are supposed to build based on let's say As an example, the shadow laws or uh, this is the type of building that should be constructed here in this land parcel. And that's what it's allocated for. So it's not singular in how we approach a project. It's very multi-dimensional, and a lot of people come together from these different kinds of backgrounds who have different kinds of expertise. We have a mechanical engineer, we have a fire safety engineer, we have a landscape architect, we have a computational designer, and we have me who is a sustainability specialist. So we all put down our voices across the different stages of projects, starting from concept design phases, schematic, detailed design, and eventually construction, occupancy, and sometimes even post-occupancy so we all come together to build a project which is which kind of complies with all of these different sectors that we are looking at so it's not it's not singular there is no one solution fits all we all come together we brainstorm different approaches we all brainstorm what is the most most sustainable way and i'm using the term sustainable very loosely here sustainable across economics across social across actual environmental parameters and what is the best that can we do uh, with this piece of land here,
0: for the listeners of the podcast, can you explain how the challenges of sustainable building design and construction may differ in developing versus developed countries, particularly for challenges that may be encountered for developing countries?
1: Sure. So, maybe I can talk through an example because I originally come from India. I worked there as an architect for one and a half year. Fun fact that both of my parents are architects, so I think I got conditioned into being an architect because of all the dinner conversations we'd had around the table every night. And I grew up with this whole design mindset, essentially. So in India, sustainability is not an add-on package service that the client will ask an architecture firm to do. It's more directly weaved into how an architect designs building. So we don't have a separate financial budget for an architecture firm to perform analysis on, let's see how my design and performing in terms of wind simulation or solar radiation or daylighting. It's very much a learned experience if we talk about sustainability in India. So we have had several historical buildings, specifically from Mughal architecture, the South Indian architecture, that perform excellently in terms of how they comply with the Indian climates. So we have a very hot and humid kind of climate, but it's not standardized. India is a big country, so we have different climates across different regions, north, south, east, and west. But in most cases, it's more focused on inspiration from these traditional pieces of architecture. So in India, we would design maybe keeping natural ventilation in mind, and we would have a more open to exterior building. There would be an intermix of this juxtaposition between interiors and exteriors, while it's way different in how sustainability is perceived in, let's say, European countries or, or in the US, because here it's a separate package that is sold to the architecture firm by the client. So the architecture firms will essentially do an analysis on different kinds of parameters like the wind performance, daylight performance, thermal comfort, exterior and outdoor thermal comfort, and the solar potential, all of these services will be weaved into when a real estate developers hires an architect and says, hey... We want you to do this project. And these are the financials associated with it. Now, this all of this is very much from, let's say, an architectural perspective. But generally, I would like to point out that there are lesser policies, there are lesser in- uh, incentives in the developing countries as compared to the developed countries. But shockingly, U.S. is still way behind in terms of policies in environmental and sustainability parameters. The European countries are doing pretty well, especially the Nordics, because right before coming to the grad school, I was working three years as a sustainability consultant at a large-scale architecture firm in Denmark. And while leaving, there was a mandate that came in Denmark the very same year that all architecture firms have to report how their building design are performing across embodied carbon parameters. So there are very stringent laws in developed countries, while developing countries are kind of behind in doing all of this for obvious reasons of economic and uh, social injustice.
0: Thanks so much for sharing a bit more of those perspectives. Within the building sector, where do you see models or best practices for success? And to what extent can those best practices be rapidly deployed, particularly in developing countries today?
1: Sure, I would like to maybe start with the ESG frameworks which have been put into place and I know that the ESG framework is a very very broad term so what it basically means is environmental social governance practices and it's a framework which was developed in order to keep in check several commercial and uh, large-scale bodies and keep them in check based on how they're performing across these parameters. So I would say that Mostly in developed countries, there are several companies that are following this framework. However, there are no standardized metrics to report. So basically, these companies are pretty much free to do what they want. And that's where we are seeing a lag in how ambitious these companies have been in saying, hey, we want to be net zero by 2030 or we want to be carbon neutral by 2030. But they are still way behind in actually actualizing these targets that they have set. Some frameworks that I would say are very important for both developed and developing countries is having equitable transparency across how these companies are reporting the metrics on performance across ESG frameworks. So firstly, recommendations relating to disclosure and decarbonization and emphasizing that these new institutions can make robust commitments to invest in community resilience. So mostly having frameworks that when these big investment companies are putting in money across different kinds of companies, and let's say both developed and developing countries, there has to be a sense of transparency on how they are reporting the kind of investment and mapping the whole stream of how this investment flows from top to bottom. So I feel that is super important. I feel developing countries can benefit more from having the right agency and the right policy frameworks in place. So these policy frameworks should come that can help these countries adopt innovation and having very stringent energy policies that can help propel the clean energy and technology industries within these developing countries. So I don't see that there's one solution fits all because every country has their own problems. They're super unique. But most of what we can do is having more stringent regulations, policies, transparency, and and having these benchmarks that different countries can retrofit according to their standards and then follow.
0: There's also been a mismatch between the sectors in which investment is flowing and where the emissions are. For example, building decarbonization is a significant share of global emissions, but is not receiving a proportionate share of funding. There was a PWC report showing that the built environment accounted for 17% of global emissions in 2019, but only 4% of global climate tech venture capital investment. How do you explain this gap, and how would you propose addressing it?
1: Sure, let me first break it down into different parts, and first address why this is happening, the gap in sort of investment. We all know that the VC deal making in climate tech has slowed down dramatically in the last three years, which all of us would think is super surprising because we're all nearing. I don't want to be very, I don't want to end on a very dramatic note, but it's like, we're all just releasing emissions every day with every activity that we do. And we don't have a set direction on how to reverse climate change. So that shouldn't be the case. But there have been a lot of recent events that have caused a slowing down in the amount of VC funding. Firstly, let's say starting with the background of war, which is still ongoing in Europe. There has been a lot of inflammation globally because of that, as an aftermath of that. And thirdly, there has been a sharp correction in the capital market. So you've seen what happened with the recent Silicon Valley Bank. And there have been a lot of these aftermath which are kind of a ripple effect. And we've one thing which has also been kind of separate from all of these events, series of events that have happened is that a lot of companies have started spotting greenwashing. And these companies are just greenwashing in how they are reporting ESGs. Now, I'm just using this term in a very literal manner. But there are several ways and loopholes on how companies can report hey, we are doing excellently in terms of ESG frameworks, but they're not actually moving the needle as if significantly as this ESG framework was put in place to help them or enable these companies to do so. So all of this, I feel, has led to a crumbling investor confidence in different kinds of companies. And I feel that that might be one of the reasons why this VC funding has slowed down. And specifically looking at the disparity between global north and south, we all know that Southern companies are comparatively still developing as compared to the northern ones. There are weather extremes in the southern companies that have exposed millions of people to food, water, scarcity. And I feel that most of the efforts to fund the companies in the global south have been mostly upstream. So the funding never really follows through and reaches the people who are supposed to get this sort of funding to make actual advancements. So one example is me working as a social innovation Chang fellow at Kennedy School. And I have some friends who come from Latin America and they broadly describe this problem very well across different kinds of initiatives that they have. So one of them is working with the police violence in Brazil. One of them is working across a different sector, which is more purifying water. But they all feel this issue across different different sectors. So it's not just that the funding doesn't reach Global South in just climate-related investments. So some ways of reforming is, is I would say, again, transparency. So There are no structures that map how this funding flows, what are the stakeholders involved in different kinds of investments. And we should have, let's say, a standardized system put into place that maps this correctly and efficiently. And that's one way of making sure that all of these robust commitments that people do, hey, we will improve the situation in this country, never really follows through. So we need to have systems in place that hold people accountable generally. And then again, I feel that there should be reformations in the existing policies of global trade and intellectual property transfer rules. So these developing countries are not allowed to harness their own green industries, and they're not able to access technologies that are developed in richer states. So this is a second a second avenue where we can be more, more stringent in terms of how these structures come into place. So let's say... Like hypothetically, uh, a rich European country is, is performing a lot of, is accumulating a lot of waste and generating a lot of waste generally. And all of this waste get transported then to China, which is where it's burned. So whose carbon is it? Is it China who's burning so much carbon, or is it this rich country? And there is no law that maps how these, you know, these structures play into place, how this diplomacy unfolds. So, Neither country want to take accountability. And even this act of sending all the waste to China to burn it, I feel that's very diplomatic. So there is no accountability structure in place. And I feel that could have been way different. So talking more about the VC funding in, let's say, comparing between for-profit and non-profits, the impact or the focus for non-profits is very much broad. It's not specifically focused on climate investments, because I know that this is a big problem, but so is homeless people or educating people. There are different avenues in social innovation that gets targeted differently. But climate change is, of course, a a, a broad problem. So some issues that I've been facing when I pitch in front of a foundation or a donor is that they personally are not able to connect with the problem of climate change, but they might personally be able to connect more with the problem of, let's say, educating students in a country more because they see their kids they see them, but they probably don't feel the effects of climate change every day. We feel that there are extremes in temperatures. We feel we see that there are more extreme events happening. Hurricanes are more in frequency. We all see this, but we don't want to acknowledge it. There is a disparity because we can't really show climate change to investors, mostly donors. So I'm more talking about the non-profit sector. But in for-profit it's mostly a business so as long as they see that there is more potential in the business they will invest and it's mostly the SaaS products but i've also seen a lot of growing investments in say um, hard tech so mostly let's say hydrogen powered batteries or nucleus micro batteries or storage of electricity so there have been investments but it's just a slower it's a slower process because we don't see climate change immediately Even though we've all been reading IPCC reports, we're looking at the COP26, 27 outcomes, all of that. We hear it, we read it in the news, and then let's say next day it's all gone. But that's just how it is.
0: You've identified a lot of really important problems and challenges facing building decarbonization. You've also described very clearly the importance of it. What do you see as the path forward in terms of policy and other measures that different stakeholders can take to accelerate building decarbonization?
1: Maybe we can end with why people should focus more on sustainability-related initiatives. What is the pressure? So let's say if there are no policies coming in, what is another avenue on how can we make, how can we hold these real estate developers more accountable or how can we push these real estate developers to do more, do things in a more sustainable way? So some things that we've been seeing is, that institutional investors are struggling to respond to their ESG disclosure requirements. So even if, let's say, real estate developers do not have a strong push from the policy side of things in the US, there are still their investors who have to respond to their ESG disclosures. And there are loopholes in the ESG disclosure, but not so many. So these investors are holding real estate developers accountable on how they are designing their portfolio and how sustainable their portfolio could be secondly with the recent uh, inflation reduction act almost 500 billion were uh, released for low carbon procurement specifically for infrastructure so all of this has created new paperwork challenges that real estate developers don't know how to target and there are several ventures that are looking in this direction on how to help real estate developers move in this direction Also, if a real estate developer goes for any sort of green certification like LEED, LEED certification assets have had a 21.4% higher market sale price, and they can quote an 11.1% higher rent since 2018. So more and more real estate developers are trying to at least have some sort of certification that keeps them in check on how they're designing buildings. And this is also helping a bit in how they are moving the needle towards this more towards a less carbon-intensive uh, construction. Thousands of companies have made public commitments to net zero. They've set science-based targets. They've sought to demonstrate their wider commitments to the society through B Corp status. So these companies have also started moving more towards hiring people who have this sort of specialized knowledge and sustainability, and they're helping them achieve these targets um, in a timely manner. There are million multi-billion dollar mega funds that are increasingly being channeled to climate tech. We know it's slow, but it's just it's just the last three years. We've seen a slowing rate in tech globally. So I will still want to be optimistic and hopeful. And we are actively fundraising. So this is a difficult market, but we are still there. We're actively pitching to investors and it's just a matter of time until we find that person who wants to be a sustainability champion and who is equally passionate about decarbonizing the built environment.
0: Thank you for speaking with us today, Critica. You can find more information about Critica via LinkedIn, and you can follow them on Twitter at KritikaK17. Thanks again to Critica for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.